scripture passage today is 2 Samuel, chapter 3, beginning in verse 28 and reading to the end of the chapter. It's page 353. Just to set the stage, I'll remind you that in this passage, in this chapter, it is meditated especially on the commander of the armies of Ishbosheth, the uh, the tribes of Israel that had aligned themselves against David. It uh, focuses on his works, his, uh, um, his rebellion really against David, and then his offering to bring peace in the country, but that then Joab murdered him because of uh, the fact that Abner had killed Joab's brother. So I'd like to pick up in verse 28. <clears throat> Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother, Asahel, at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron. The king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Can't turn on any news source without it very quickly turning to describe some war or bloodshed or murder taking place around the world can't look at our own country in the midst of an election year without shaking your head at the very deep divisions that are seen in our country. You can't honestly look at the church without also recognizing divisions, the trials, the strife that exists even in the house of God. Do you look at these things that you come to a conclusion 
that human organizations without Christ tend to fly apart. But blessed be the peacemakers who follow after the peacemaker, excuse me, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. In this passage, David foreshadows Christ, one who came in his role as king, one who came to pursue peace in Israel, to bring the tribes, the nation back together as after the division that had happened. In particular, he pursued peace even after Joab's action threatened to shatter the very fragile peace that had been forged. David, in this way, foreshadows Jesus Christ. From this, we will learn uh, that there is really only one true peacemaker, and that is Jesus Christ, and that as we follow after him, that we will learn to be peacemakers as well. But first, we need to be honest that there are enemies of peace. There are sins that tend to divide and destroy even the church itself. So we'll begin to look at that, all driving towards the the peace that David was trying to, to bring in the nation, ultimately leading to Jesus Christ, who is our peacemaker. So let's look at the passage and to look at the enemies of peace. In the passage previously, we noted that Abner had offered to deliver all of Israel to David. And David accepted this. He accepted this even knowing that Abner had been part of the rebellion and acted against God's revealed will, acted against himself. And yet David accepted this. Because as he was acting as the true king, he was indeed attempting to unify the nation. It was God's purpose. He was trying to bring peace to God's people. But David's effort was effectively torpedoed by what Joab did. This was David's right-hand man, the general of of all of, of David's armies, And he took it into his own hands to commit murder when he struck down Abner. We looked at that, the sins of Joab's heart that gave birth to murder. And I'll visit them just briefly again because I want you to see that they were sins that didn't just affect Joab. They had an obvious effect on Abner, the one who was struck down uh, murderously. But... There is more to it than that. Joab's actions also infected and affected the entire nation. When we look at what uh, what Abner did, excuse me, what uh, what Joab did, I want you to just imagine if you were one of the ones who were in the camp of Abner and of, of Ishbosheth. Imagine that. There was some hope of the end of this civil war and that David had acted in a way that demonstrated that he was desiring peace. He gave safe passage to Abner to come and to negotiate this and sent him out with that safe passage, even with a blessing, go and do what you have promised to do. Only to have Abner brought 
back into the country and then, and then murdered by Joab. What would you think was going on? It certainly wasn't an act that would, would prompt more peace. In fact, the most likely outcome is that they would become angry at this. The general of the nation of Israel had been struck down. And what are you going to do about that? Well, you're going to have a call to arms, and there's going to be more warfare. The civil, ar- civil war will just be deepened by this action. At the very least, they probably would have abandoned the offer of peace. They would have abandoned the process altogether. They might have said, as others did later in uh, David's reign, what do we have to do with David? Every man to his own tent. It would have been a scattering of the nation, a scattering of the tribes. And it highlights the tendency of, of, the, of the human condition that causes alliances to crumble and to fall. But why is this? The narrative highlights the sins of Joab, the sins of his heart, and then the consequences that come because of that. And here's where I'm going to draw in what Abner did and the sins that he was combating. And I want you to see the broader effects of his actions and of his sins. So the first enemy that you see is the sinfulness of uh, of the heart. And I just want to remind you here that that this is not something trite that I'm putting in front of you. There goes Pastor Parnell again talking about sin. Well, I am going to talk about sin, but it's... It's not a matter that is, is lightly passed over. It's because of the fact that it is out of the heart that come all of the murders and warfare and bloodshed that I mentioned in my introduction. They come from somewhere. They come from sin. So I want you to see that out of the hearts do come murders, Sins of vengeance, disrespecting authority, and selfish ambition are the ones that are particularly noted in Joab's life. And that's just one example. I can go on and on to prove God's word true when it says, There is none righteous. No, not one, says Paul in Romans. He goes on to describe the effects of that, the consequences of sin. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. That is the path of all who have sinned. It's a path that contributes to all of the catastrophe and the hatred and warfare that you see around the world and in your own hearts as well. Commentator Phillips puts it this way, that this is why Joab was so willing to violate David's attempt at peace and why resentment, anger, and hatred reign in all human society. Why is that? Again, it is because the sins of the heart give birth to sins on the outside, and those sins have consequences. 
Think then of the second heartfelt sin that, uh, that afflicted Joab, the, the sin of remembering past grievances and grudges. Joab and Abner were kinsmen. They were fellow citizens of Israel. They worshipped the same God. And yet, Joab remembered the offense of Abner. We aren't told how long it was that this took place, but Abner killed Abishai, excuse me, killed uh, uh, Asahel in battle. And Joab and Abishai remembered this and made it to be a blood feud with Abner. As I said it said in my last sermon, they, they said, you killed my brother, I'm going to kill you. And they sinned by taking the matter into their own hands rather than recognizing that there were consequences of war that take place and that Amasa's death was in the con context of a battle, not that of murder. What Joab and Abishai did was to murder. Outside of the context of warfare, they took justice in their own hands and they struck down uh, Abner. And they did this because of the bitterness of their souls that had planted that seed of vengeance in their hearts. That vengeance grew and grew so much that even though Joab knew that David was pursuing peace, he was trying to unite the, the nation, that Joab would jeopardize even that. I would have you know that even as surely as Joab's holding on to past sins will fracture a delicate peace, even as surely as Joab's actions, the Bible warns you in the same way. The way of peace takes diligent, proactive, intentional effort. The way of peace suffers long. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But anger and vengeance destroys over and over and over again. The third enemy to peace that's highlighted here is the, is the sin of selfishness. I showed you how Joab acted in his own self-entrance. Without regard to David, without regard to the Lord, what a devastating attack of the enemy to sow seeds of selfishness in our hearts. You can detect it all over the place. Even in the upper room where Jesus gathered his disciples together, where he celebrated the Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper, he was going to the cross to lay down his life for our sins. He demonstrated that. This is my body which is broken. This is my blood which is poured out for you. And what were the disciples talking about? Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Really? Even in the church, 
selfishness is an enemy of peace. Elevates you against Christ himself. And it elevates you against your brothers and sisters. What a damage, what damage it does to the peace of Christ which he purchases. Let's turn now to see David's response to Joab, how he steadfastly pursued peace. David's response gives us an example of those who pursue peace, those who pursue peace. When David learned what Joab had done, he acted quickly and decisively. In so doing, David did what he could to continue to pursue the peace that he had set his mind after. Almost a dogged determination that you see in David. You know what I mean by that? When it appears like the goal that you have set is, is decaying, is being destroyed by things around you, and you think you, you'll never reach that goal. And yet you believe that it is right. So there's this, this dogged determination, a steadfastness to continue to pursue that goal. And in David's ministry as king, he was pursuing the reunification of the nation of Israel. He was pursuing God's peace. And I want you to notice how he responded. I said, quickly and decisively. If you look at verse 28, you see that David, as soon as he heard this, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner. He proclaimed his innocence. My kingdom and I are guiltless. With this clear statement, David declared to everyone who could hear, I had no part in this. And it speaks to those who were his supporters. And surely they would, uh, would see and understand that. David was their man. But it also speaks to the other tribes the ones that had been aligned against him, the ones that could very easily see that David had conspired against Abner. And what David says is that I did not do this. It wasn't David just speaking for himself, but he says, I did not do this and my kingdom did not do this. Now, Joab was his general, and so part of his administration. But in saying it this way, he says, I did not intend for this. I did not command it. He places the guilt on Joab, acted on his own authority. Not only did David say, I didn't do this, but he also denounced Joab for this sinful act. Look at verse 29, he pronounces a curse on Joab and on his household. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house. And let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or who is a leper. That's talking about the 
uncleanness of the Old Testament economy. Uh, and that was, uh, uh, there is a curse there that is being voiced. He goes on, or one who leans on the staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. That's speaking of weakness, of judgment. What David is doing is he is, he is asking God to see and to know what Joab has done and asking God to bring judgment on Joab for that. Now, in asking for this, Joab does act righteously, recognizes the sin of Joab, and condemns it. But something perplexing still troubles us. You might notice that David's denouncement falls short of taking action against Joab. And that's something that has perplexed the church through the ages. Why didn't David act as judge against Joab? Now, there are lots of theories about this, and it would, it's a very interesting question, and yet it, uh, it could go on for quite a bit of time and will distract from this pursuit of peace that David is, is engaged in. So I won't go into all of the details, but... Let me just say that I believe David made a mistake here in not exercising judgment. That highlights that his faith and his obedience were not perfect. I think we have some indications about this in the closing verses where David speaks about giving praise to Abner, but then also saying about his own position. He says, I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, that's Joab and, and, uh, Joab and his brother, uh, Abishai. Get all the A's uh, uh, going around in my head and on my tongue, so sorry for uh, fumbling with that. Uh, these sons of Zeruiah are too harsh for me. So one of the things that seems to be at work is that David is calculating the political power that he has. He has just been anointed king, and his administration is weak, and Joab is strong. And that if he were to act against Joab, that Joab and his camp could have left and created more civil war. It could be that David was calculating what he could do to maintain the peace that he was pursuing. I believe he erred in that. I believe the weakness of his faith informed him. This is the same man, David, who when King Saul tried to kill him, when King Saul was hunting him like a dog, said, I will not raise my hand against Saul. By faith, he did the right thing. 
But David was a mere man, just as we are mere men and women. Our faith and our obedience is flawed. I think in calculating the cost, David erred by not acting as king and as judge in this situation. He did indeed proclaim his innocence, and he denounced Joab. Secondly, David honored Abner with what we'll call a state funeral. He ordered this. Text describes this this decision-making in a way that makes it really clear that David's design is indeed to testify to all those who could see, all of Israel, that he was not involved in Abner's death. And here I would have you see that he, he is indeed pursuing that peace. So he ordered what we would call a state funeral. Abner was to be buried with honor. Even though he had rebelled against David and against God, David had, had received him back, had forgiven him, and, and had given him a task to do. And in his death, he was buried with honor. David speaks about him as one who was a prince and a great man who was fallen that day. That's not the only thing about Abner. Remember that, that Abner's sins are another part of this story. But he did not deserve to die in the way he died. And so he honors Abner. He was struck down unrighteously. And so he was buried with honor. He was buried in Hebron, which was one of the cities of peace. It's the resting place of the patriarchs. So just think of that. Abner is buried in the same place. Think of the honor that's, that's there. And David the king came and not only attended the funeral, but he marched in the procession. He followed the coffin, showing his, his grief and showing honor to the one who has fallen. He even ordered Joab and all of his men to participate in this funeral march. Joab went ahead of the coffin. And if there wasn't justice that fell, this was at least a reprimand that David brings on Joab to make him honor the man he had murdered. And they mourned over, uh, over Abner. He called for, uh, for the funeral procession and for all of the nation to to mourn, to rend their clothes, to put on sackcloth that would be compared to like a burlap or a rough spun clothing that would not be comfortable to wear. It was a sign of humiliation before the Lord. It's a sign of mourning before the Lord. And David gave a lament over Abner. Listen to the words that he gave again. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. The man falls before wicked men, so you fell. So he says, you weren't arrested and bound and taken into judgment. No, you were a 
free man and struck down by murderous hands. You were, were tricked to come back into this situation. You fool and yeah, you, you died as a fool. Fell before wicked men. So David lamented this sinful act by Joab. He also fasted, refusing to eat until the day was over. Another sign of mourning. I like the way, again, that uh, the commentator Philip summarizes this. David's conduct at, uh, at Abner's funeral erased any question that anyone may have had. And what had the potential of being a very divisive act actually served as a unifying event. This comes from the text. All the people took notice of it. It pleased them. All of the people and all of Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, son of Ner. David was pursuing peace doggedly, intentionally. It's that pursuit of peace that I would apply to you as a church today. Outline, you can just say, point three, pursue peace. Pursue peace. And I'll begin by applying it to the leadership of the church and to the relationship of leadership to those who are led. Pursue peace. One way that leaders pursue peace is by curbing the sins of the heart. One way that you pursue peace is by curbing the sins of selfishness, the sins of ambition, the sins of, of, of vengeance, that are so highlighted by this passage in Joab's life. In this way, leaders must be above reproach. In this passage, you can see how David could stand before God with a clean conscience and say, I didn't do this. But there's more to it because David is the leader of Judah and the anointed king of all of Israel needed more than just a clean conscience. He needed his reputation to be preserved by the way in which he dealt with Joab, with Abner, with himself, and with the watching country, the watching nation. You can apply this to all sorts of leadership, to leadership and country, to long for national leadership that's above reproach, <laughs> Is there an amen to that? <laughs> uh, leadership in your home, leadership in your business, leadership in your church. It's in this church context that I especially want to apply it. That's for this reason that I read from 1 Timothy chapter 3. There, Paul describes the office of bishop, the office of elder and the character of such men. They are to be, among other things, blameless, not greedy, 
of good behavior, gentle, not quarrelsome, one who manages their own households well, leading his children with all reverence, having a good testimony among the community. Didn't read all of the qualifications there. I've just highlighted some of the ones that are so connected to those sins of the heart that we've been thinking about. Selfishness, ambition, vengeance, quarrelsomeness. And this light, we urge you to pray for the elders of our congregation. They would be such men. You pray for me in this way. That you would pray for leadership in the church more broadly, that God would give such elders to lead, elders that pursue the peace of Jesus Christ sacrificially, doggedly, that they curb those sins of the heart that are enemies of peace. Now, it should also be said that those who are led bear responsibility too. In the nation of Israel, the people of Israel also bore responsibility for the, the fracturing of the country, the division and the destruction of the peace of the country. Turn back to the the book of 1 Samuel, and see that they wanted a king. They wanted a king like the nations around them. And why did they want that? Well, it's because of their own selfish ambition. And in doing so, they were disrespecting the authority that God had given them. The Lord himself was their king. And they said, no, we want a king like the nations around us. And they disrespected the human leadership that God had given. Samuel warned them what would happen. Exactly what we're reading about right now. Samuel warned them about this, but they said, no, we want a king. They turned to their own desires and their own path to their own hurt. And if those who are led defy God and those he has placed in authority, it is to your own hurt. Think of the admonition that the book of Hebrews gives, the admonition and, and, and warning. Submit to your elders. Watch over your souls. Submit to them. You do not do so is not Good for your soul. You should see then a balance between leaders and those who are led. Balance of leaders who are above reproach and those who are being led who show respect. And in this balance, you'll find godly peace. I urge you to pray for such peace and to pursue it in your life, peace with others. And especially in this application, peace within the church. But that peace will never be forged without Jesus. It's the last application that I will make. 
Pursue peace by following the peacemaker, capital T, capital P, the peacemaker, Jesus Christ. David pursued this, and in doing so, I'll say once more that he foreshadows the true prince of peace. David faced long odds, really, right? When countries start to break apart in civil war, it often does not go well. It was made even harder by his general acting against his wishes and torpedoing that peace. And it was made even harder by David's own sins. At the end of the day, David would not bring about this peace. Jesus does. In him and in him only will you find peace. You may have a soul that is restless, casting about for reason, for meaning, for just making sense of what's going on in your life. And you will try to fill that void with lots of other things. I assure you that you will never find rest. You will never find peace unless you come humbly to Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, asking him to be your savior. I would urge you to find that peace in Jesus Christ. Because that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to bring enemies back to God. Jesus died on the cross for enemies. Those who would have nothing to do with him, and worse, who waged war against him. Jesus died for you if you are repenting and trusting in Christ. Your enmity with God is solved by Jesus, and in him you will find peace. By Christ you are given peace with God. Not only that, Christ's bounty is even bigger than that. Having found forgiveness with God Find that you can also forgive others. You can be at peace with others and pursue that. What does the Bible say about pursuing peace? Here's Hebrews again, Hebrews 12. Pursue peace with all people. For they, uh, excuse me, pursue peace with all people in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Or Romans 14, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify one another. Brothers and sisters, let us pursue this peace. Having peace with God, let us pursue this peace as well. Will it be easy? No, because there are many enemies of peace. I've highlighted just three, and many more could be added. It takes diligent, dogged, proactive, intentional pursuit of peace. 
It is an effort to pursue this. But this command is also a blessing of our Savior. It is part of the bounty which he pours out on us. The Prince of Peace calls you to also follow him in peace and to be peacemakers. I pray that today you would be blessed by that peace in Christ and that you would also be blessed as a peacemaker. For Christ himself has said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord our God, we confess before you our own selfish desires and all of the sins of the heart that wage war against you, against the, the, the peace that you have claimed for all believers. God, it is so true that like a dog returning to his vomit, how often we fall back into these sins of the heart. The consequences can be seen all around us. God, forgive us for being enemies of peace, being enemies of yours. But we praise you and thank you that you have come. And while we were still enemies, that Christ died for us. And that because of that, we are now made sons and daughters of God. And as sons and daughters, that you invite us and command us and equip us to pursue peace with others. God bless us with this. May we pursue it with earnest effort, looking to and resting in Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. In his name we pray. Close by singing another psalm of the blessing of peace, Psalm 34, Selection C. Let's stand and sing Psalm 34, C.